Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Arthur Wheelock. He's the co-curator of Pleasure and Piety, the Art of Joachim Udeval, 1566 to 1683 at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. It's the first retrospective of the Utrecht Master's work. The show will be on view through October 4th before traveling to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston on November 1st. Wheelock's co-curators were Lisbeth Helmus of the Central Museum Utrecht and Houston's James Clifton. Udeval's career straddled the 16th century and the dawn of the Dutch Golden Age. His mannerist style predated the Dutch discovery of Caravaggism, and Udeval seems never to have been much interested in the new thing. Furthermore, his focus on erotic scenes drawn from Ovid seems spectacularly un-Dutch, when suggests we might need to revise our understanding of what Dutch art was. Wheelock is the National Gallery of Art's curator of the Northern Baroque and a giant in the American curatorial field. He has organized or co-organized nearly 40 exhibitions in his 42 years at the National Gallery, including surveys of Vermeer, Rembrandt, Kuyp, Averkamp, Lester, Du, Van Dyck, Terborch, and more. I'll be back with Arthur Wheelock for the full hour after the break. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor Phyllida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher Galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Phyllida Barlow Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Arthur Wheelock, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. Joachim Uteval was a man of prominence in his community beyond just being an artist. Before we get to the work, what, what made him, how was he a man of prominence in Utrecht, and how did the many hats he wore impact or might have impacted his painting career? Well, you're starting me off with a tough question. <laughs> he, is a, he is a conundrum. I really don't understand how it all fits together, really, even after all this time of working on him and becoming fascinated with him. So Uteval was, as you said, in Utrecht, and Utrecht was a wonderful city in the Netherlands, still is a wonderful city, and it's a great place to visit. It is inland. It's not in the province of Holland. It's inland in, in, the Netherlands, in terms of the Netherlands not a port city at all, and has a very agrarian culture and a very conservative culture. And that's actually very interesting when you see what he does, because it doesn't look conservative at all. But uh, he was a flax merchant and very profitable business. And he was a very religious individual, a city father. He was on the town council and right, quite conservative in terms of the, his religious beliefs. He was a big supporter of the Dutch Prince of Orange, Prince Moritz in those days. So he was involved with the political world, very involved with 
what the Netherlands was trying to become because this was just a time during the Dutch revolt against Spanish control. So it's really talking at the very beginning of the 17th century, or even he starts in the late 16th century. But it's all that time when the Dutch are revolting against Spain. And they, so they're trying to establish who they are as a culture and how these cities get formed. And he was very involved in all that world. At the same time, he's an artist and very, and obviously very successful as an artist from the late 16th century into the early 17th century. He, as far as Carl von Mander is concerned, Carl von Mander was a sort of a person who wrote about art at that time, and he was sort of the Dutch Vizari. He complained that Uteval was spending too much time in business, and he should be spending more time on painting because he was such an incredible painter. So even then, it was like this two worlds that we hard hard to reconcile how they work together. So today we would think it notable, if not a little bit odd, that someone who was strictly religious was painting, I guess, as much kind of lurid, erotic, Ovid-derived subject matter as Udoval was. Was that unusual in the in the 16th and 17th century? You would think it would be. <laughs> as I say, I don't get it, really. So let's put it, let's forget his personal beliefs for the moment or, you know, this is uh, community involvement, political involvement. And if we look at him in terms of the artistic spectrum of his life, that all seems to the religious, uh, the, the, the sexual, sensual, mythological approach makes sense. It's just putting that together with him personally that I have a hard time with. But he belongs to a whole period of artists who were fascinated with stories, storytelling, and they found the great inspiration for the storytelling often in Greek mythology, particularly Ovid, and Ovid, the metamorphoses, and the idea that you find in Ovid of gods and goddesses behaving badly, basically, they're all, they're all having some issues with each other, with, with mortals that they probably shouldn't be having, and there are repercussions to those actions. And Ovid tells, amazing. I mean, if you ever want a, a great story, just a bedtime, sit around, you know, read, lie in bed and read, read Ovid. It is the most amazing story uh, that keeps going, and all these people come back, and there are different transformations. And in the 17th century, like 16th century, they love these stories, but they also could see in them sort of morals. If you behave this way, then that's going to happen to you. So there was what's called the Ovid Moralise. There were all these implications about these this behavior that were things that were understood in the learned society at that time. So these were stories of great impact gods and goddesses, serious people and significant people, or significant gods, as it were. And the same in the Bible. You could find the stories of the Bible. You find all these sort of weird behaviors in the Bible that are not things that we necessarily recommend people do on a daily basis, but they became sort of you know, exemplars about what you should or shouldn't do or how you should behave. So all these stories, it's interesting, they are great, fascinating scenarios on their own, but they put them into the context of their own culture and society and life. And that's where I think maybe you can get a connection between 
this what's become a lurid central world that he depicts, and maybe a justification of somebody who had a very strict moral code might be able to do this with a sort of you know good conscience. So. Udaval mixes these lurid stories with lots of kind of, I don't know, luscious mannerism. It's, it's, it's mannerism not with kind of hard enamel skin like maybe Florentine mannerism. It's, it's fleshy. It's, it's ruddy. Very central. And, Very. And, and whatever the size. And this is another thing I don't understand exactly about Udaval. He can paint very large paintings, life-size figures in huge canvases. And also these incredible coppers that are, you know, six by eight inches or even smaller. And they're equally central, equally the large ones and the small coppers. And how does he think in these two different scales? And how does he able to master them in such an amazing way? I want to get to copper in a moment. But but, but before we do, the scholarly consensus seems to be that Udeval gets to mannerism through a Central European painter named Bartolomeus Spranger, who people may remember from a marvelous exhibition at the Metropolitan in the fall and winter of 2014. How do we think Udeval was exposed to, became aware of Spranger? Well, Spranger works his basic place where he becomes really has a huge impact on the North is when he's working with the court of Rudolf II in Prague. And this Karl von Mando that I mentioned earlier goes to Prague and he sees what Spranger is doing and he says, whoa, this is really wonderful. And I have a buddy back home in Harlem by the name of Henrik Goltzius and he is a great engraver. And I'm going to take some of Spranger's drawings back to Karl von Mander, I mean to uh, Henrik Goltzius, and, and which he does. And Goltzius, in fact, starts to make all these beautiful engravings in the style based on Spranger compositions, and then becomes very much inspired by Spranger's elongated forms and central interplay of figures and creates his own variants of Spranger-type compositions. Those are the points of reference for Uteval, who is in Utrecht. He is seeing what Goltzius is engraving in Harlem. And so, in large part, the connections to Spranger go via Goltzius in Harlem. Uteval paints lots of things, portraits, and of course the scenes we were discussing um, earlier, but particularly kind of on the earliest side of his career, as you mentioned a moment ago, he loved to paint on copper. The, the, the flatness of the surface helped him achieve just remarkable detail. Most of those paintings date to a single decade in his career, to the first decade of the 17th century. Any idea why he stopped painting on copper? Well, he doesn't stop entirely. He continues into the teens. I think the last one is 16, 16, if I'm not mistaken. Those are incredible paintings, and they're little treasures. And they're the kind of paintings that one can, one can imagine at that time, whenever hung on a wall, they were kept in a collector's cabinet type of place, and they were brought to brought out only on special occasions to show to a good friend or some admirer of that type of painting. I have a, now Uteval is the only one that, that I'm aware of who paints small paintings like this on copper in the Netherlands. So you have you have copper by Jan Bruegel in the southern Netherlands, but not really in the north. Uteval is sort of the, the copper guy. 
in in the north. And I suspect it has something to do with uh, the people who liked those coppers were people who admired the kind of world that Rudolf II was creating in Prague and in his Kunstkammer, the the world of little treasures is you know natural treasures and man-made treasures these are treasures these are these are you look at them and said how on earth did he ever do that that's the first kind of reaction you have to oh my god look at this and that sense of can you imagine this is something that somebody some real person made i mean that was a kind of a feeling that you had with these works that fascination with this world I think is very strong at that late 16th, early 17th century, but it I think changes in the, by the by the teens that you start to see a different interest in what art is what it consists of, and the aspirations to the world of Rudolf II sort of dissipate and become less pre- prevalent. So I guess kind of the last big kind of thematic thing about Udoval before we kind of turn to some specific paintings. Lisbeth Helmus, in in her essay, notes that over time, art historians and art lovers have kind of separated the late 16th, very early 17th century Mannerist-informed or Mannerist painters from the Dutch Golden Age painters, you know, the Rembrandts and and Van Goyens and, and, and so on and so forth. Why did that happen? And would any such, you know, is that kind of a split or difference, something we think about now, or would that have was that happening or have been perceived back in the early 17th century? Yeah, it's a big question, a fascinating one. It's one that actually I focused on in the essay I wrote in the catalog, which was sort of the historical reputation of Uteval. And I think the most e- the easiest way to understand that and sort of taking you out of the 17th century into the 19th century, because that's where our understanding of the 17th century really lies, is really in the 19th century appreciation of Dutch art and Bettine particularly in a writer, a French writer by the name of Eugene Fromentin. And Fromentin loved Dutch art. He, he, loved, he loved lots of art, but he loved Dutch art. He loved uh, Flemish art. But uh, in terms of when he thought about Dutch, what he talked about was that the Dutch art began essentially with the beginning of the 17th century. So he ties it in chronologically to the beginning of the 17th century, which makes a lot of sense. And what he admires about Dutch art is that these artists made a portrait of that world. And that's a portrait in the broadest sense. So the portrait of people, portrait of landscape, portrait of still lives, portrait of figures going about their daily life, you name it. So it is this definition of the the portrayal of the world that these Dutch artists did that we in the 19th century have so admire. And he talks about what goes on before. He doesn't mention Uteval, but he mentions Goltzius and other artists from this time. He says, those guys, you can't even talk about them as being Dutch. They don't, they don't belong. So he dismisses them as not even being Dutch because they don't do this portrait of that world. And the question that is very interesting is in the 17th century at Uteval's time, did they feel that way or not? I mean, that's Fromentin's approach really dictated how the 17th century was understood throughout the 19th and 20th century. Really, when I was in school, it was definitely still 
Fromentan. We didn't talk about mannerism. We didn't talk about Dutch Caravagism. Fromentan, in fact, talks about no artists from Utrecht. He doesn't talk about Hontors, Terbruggen, any of the Dutch Caravagisti. There's not one artist from Utrecht mentioned by Fromentan. They're all from Harlem, Delft, Leiden, Amsterdam, Harlem. So it's, it is a very distinctive approach. And that, so it's interesting that Uteval has been left out of the story until really the 1980s. Most of the paintings in this show that are in public collections were acquired in the 1980s. Hardly anything that happens before that. They were just neglected. Now, in the 17th century, there is a big shift in the sort of second decade, particularly in Harlem, that people start to look at the world and describe it much more realistically. So there is this is happening in the 17th century, but it's not nearly as dramatic as Fromentin made it out to be. Fromentin did not allow history paintings to exist in the Netherlands. He did not allow stories in the Bible and mythology in his sense of what Dutch art was all about. But it did exist, and the Dutch did allow that, but the elongated manners, intertwining figures and strange colors moved into a more realistic framework of, of space and, and logical world. So I'd say, yes, Uteval is actually very conservative. He never moves out of mannerism. Our painting at the National Gallery, Moses Striking the Rock, is dated 1624, and by 1624, you have all this realism going on in the rest of the Netherlands. So he is sticking with this style much longer than anybody else. So he's really kind of at the end of a story. It doesn't mean his paintings are not admired. They are. They There are collectors, but they they become less and less what people talk about. So in the North, does mannerism run out of gas as simply because Caravaggism arrives, or is there more to it, maybe a more nationalistic reason? Mannerism runs out of gas, for sure. And there are, Uteval is the last remaining member of the mannerist world that really has any kind of impact. The There are two things, at least, that, that play into this. One is certainly the arrival of the artists in Utrecht, had been to Rome, had been inspired by Caravaggio. So you have, in 1620 or, or so, you have Zerbruggen and Hontorst and Dirk van Baburen coming back and large-scale figures and often with dramatic light effects, not always, but does that certainly has a big impact in Harlem. But you have other artists going from Utrecht to Italy, like Pullenberg, Cornelius van Pullenberg, and he goes there, and he's not looking at Caravaggio so much, but he's looking at Raphael. So you have, you have a, with Pullenberg, you have a classicistic tenth tendency in these small, his small paintings, which are often on copper, larger than Uteval's, but on copper as well, very refined paintings, but classicistic, looking at the antiquities, looking at that world. In Harlem and in Amsterdam and, and Leiden and elsewhere, you start to find a, a greater emphasis in describing this world that has now become the Dutch Republic. They're very proud of who they are. They're proud of this They've beaten back Spain there, and at that same time, they're asking the questions: Who are we? So they're creating a language, Dutch language. They're creating laws. They're creating a social structure, but they're also 
proud, the sense of pride in their land. And it was very interesting. I always thought that the concept of the Dutch Golden Age was something of people in the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, looking back to this great achievements that the Dutch had in the 17th century. But no, the concept of Dutch Golden Age is starts right at the beginning of the century. People are writing, we're entering into our golden age. And this is a very interesting concept because you can take it two ways. You can have artists like Uteval saying, oh, this is a Dutch golden age. And so what do they do? They paint the golden age. There's a fabulous painting at the Met that's in the show, a copper of the golden age. And that that's somewhat interesting that he paints the golden age. It's this mannerist, beautiful serene world with all these elegant figures and beautiful landscape and there is an equivalent in his mind i'm quite sure that that golden age is what we are entering into in our new dutch republic at the same time other artists particularly in these other centers say our dutch golden age we should be proud of what we have we shouldn't go back and look at antiquity we should look at our landscape we should look at our little swampy world and you know our windmills and our and our trees and our towns and our people and 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 proud and be proud of what we see in this world of ours and, and re reproduce that in our paintings so you have two different approaches i think the Met painting, The Golden Age, is a really good transition to the way you open your essay, which is by saying that Udevald simply does not look Dutch. And The Golden Age looks very much like something one would expect a young Titian to produce. You know, kind of heaving bodies in a classical landscape, lots of people having kind of a naked bacchanal by by, by a stream. Was, was Udeval or or his contemporaries considered... Italian or over Italian, or how would how would that have been read? How would Udeval have thought of a scene like that? International. He was part of an international world, so I think he certainly looked at Spranger and doing something like that, and he's looked at Goltzius, but he is Dutch. He's very Dutch, uh, and there, but he does look at this these other worlds. Now that painting actually is rather interesting because that painting was in the collection of Rudolf II, so that is a that really shows, okay, this world that he's creating is something that clearly was, in, you know, found an audience in that kind of collector, that kind of these little treasures. But this is, so it looks like Titian, but it's, remember, it's small and on copper, so it's not very big. So it has that sort of treasure element to it. When I look at a painting like The Death of Procris, which is from about the same time as the Golden Age, maybe five or so years earlier, so 1595, 1600-ish, it's in St. Louis, if, if that helps people. And of course, we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com. It doesn't feel Dutch either. It kind of looks maybe more like Correggio or something than, than, than anything else. How and, and it also is kind of a painting that maybe in the context of this show, although I haven't, I haven't seen your installation, kind of introduces the heaving bosoms about which Udeval was not shy. How would that painting have fit into Dutch art? Well, he was just painting how these gods and goddesses dressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there was, as was documented. Right, exactly. <laughs> would it have stood out as being a particularly kind of flashy painting? Well, I think mannerism is uh, not... There's nothing shy about a manner's paintings. They are flashy. There's no getting away from it. This painting is not inconsistent with other artists painting large. This is a very, this is larger. Than, I mean, the 
the golden age of small copper. This is a fairly large painting. And there were artists at this time, and also in Utrecht, painting large-scale paintings that are similar. So you have uh, Abraham Blumart in, in Utrecht painting scenes like this. In Harlem, you have a painter by the name of Cornelius, Cornelius van Harlem. He's painting large-scale figures. And they all have moving their bodies in all sorts of ways that you wouldn't normally think bodies should move and stretching limbs and contorted poses of hands. The hands are always very complicated, the, the way the fingers could attach to the rest of the, of the hand. So this painting with and this colors, you have this yellows and these, these uh, sort of raspberry colors, sort of off colors, the kind of world views of trees that are sort of sloping at each other. These, these, that's a vocabulary that is not unique to Uteval. That is pretty much in a context of these other artists painting larger scale paintings. So there is a commonality in approach from this period that I, that I think is very striking. And sometimes we even say, is that really Uteval or is it Blumart? I mean, can we be sure? And that sometimes if they're not signed it's sometimes very difficult because they are using some of the same vocabulary a mannerist almost by definition is taking over forms that another artist has used so there's they're not shy about adapting poses from one artist to the other or for the same artist using the same pose in multiple ways and in, in different narratives that he's he's creating so there you do find the commonality here that I would say this painting would not stand out as being anything outside the realm of what was being done in the late 16th century. My guest is Arthur Wheelock. We'll be right back after a break. Discover the playful and adventurous work of the photographers Harry Schunk and Janos Kender in the exhibition Art on Camera, photographs by Schunk Kender, 1960 to 1971, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. There's also live music and refreshments on Thursday nights, conversations about modern and contemporary art, and Yoko Ono's participatory white chess set, all outdoors in MoMA's idyllic sculpture garden throughout July and August. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. And now back to my conversation with Arthur Wheelock. We talked about paintings on copper earlier. One of the paintings about which you wrote for the catalog is the Apulian Shepherd, which is among among the Ovid stories that Udeval took as a jumping off point. thought this might be a good painting. It's a pretty ambitious painting, even though it's pretty tiny. And I thought it might be a good painting around which to ask if you have ideas about why Udeval chose the stories from Ovid he chose. Were they 
that come from him? Do you think that came from commissioners, clients? We don't know enough about his who purchased his paintings. The interesting thing is a lot of the works that he made stayed in his own collection. And so this, the issue, to a certain extent, is why did he paint these? Was it just because he really wanted to? Or was there a market that he was trying to satisfy? He didn't need, it doesn't seem, he didn't need to paint them for the money because he was such a successful a businessman. So, and this painting, this subject is is rather unusual. I'm actually not even sure there's another painting of the Apulian shepherd. So, why does he choose it? I, you know, only thing I could say in, in any kind of thing that makes any sense is that he often was just such an engaging writer, and the stories that the scenarios that he described, I'm sure inspired Uteval's imagination. There's nothing, you know, in Uteval's paintings, it's the imagination over and over and over again. You talked about the incredible imagination that it allows him to create these effects. So I think the stories that, that inspire the imagination were also something that, that he really liked. In this case, it's a, kind of a nice little moral. I mean, it's a, it's, it's you, the Pullian shepherd is, you know, he's just the shepherd, and he's out there walking through the landscape, and and he sees these lovely ladies, some dressed a, a bit, and some dressed not at all, uh, dancing in a circle, and and he sort of jumps around and try to make makes fun of their dances, and they're dancing right by the the cave of the god Pan and and this is you know he does a very dumb thing which is to make fun of somebody more powerful than yourself and so as he's dancing around in a weird fashion these nymphs look at him and say ah, that's just a shepherd so we don't have to worry about that guy and so what they do is they transform him in this metamorphosis into an olive tree. So we see in this painting, the shepherd standing there with his trees about branching out from his head as Pan is laughing at him and, and, the, and the nymphs are still dancing around having a great old time enjoying himself. It is a, is a wonderful way to show beautiful women dancing in all sorts of ways and different rhythms of their, their, their legs and their arms and their faces and the kind of joy that they have in doing that. And the implications or the impact of somebody makes a stupid response to a situation that he sees. He should have just watched and enjoyed it and walked on. But no, no, uh, he had to make that comment, and that creates this, um, this scenario. And that basically, it's mostly the joy of that. But it's also, if you need to have a moral, it's there. If you really need to, you know, think you justify it somehow, it's there. It's a, it's a marvelous little painting. The the kind of circle of nymphs dancing is replicated in the broader composition of the painting that takes in the shepherd and a goat and I think somebody playing a lyre on the right. It's really a marvelous little thing. And it is little. It is something to hold in your hand. That I I don't want. I can't stress that enough. And it is six by eight inches. They they are very personal. You get. You hold these close to you, and you get so engaged and dis- 
discovering all the little things that Utafal is creating in them. That's part of the joy. And one of the, I'm very proud of the way we installed the show in Washington. It's, uh, it's it was, we thought long and hard about how do you give the viewer the sense that they are can imagine holding these paintings in your hand. So we worked very hard to kind of put them at an angle both to help with the lighting, but also to give you the feeling what it would be like to, to be there in front of this and have this personal experience with it. You know, another thing in Udoval paintings that doesn't feel super Dutch to me is the way that he has something happening in every little inch of almost every canvas. And, you know, maybe a couple examples are the wedding of Cupid and Psyche, or maybe in the foreground, the shell-strewn beach in Perseus and Andromeda. He's got all of this stuff going on everywhere, and yet the compositions, you know, always hold together. Am I right? Is that not very Dutch? And where do you think that for for Udoval comes from, or why is that appealing to him? We have to... We have to acknowledge that Utevald is Dutch. So, what's not Dutch? I mean, what are we? So, what you're going back to what Fromentin describes as being Dutch. But I think we have to sort of okay. We have to accept the fact that Dutch is more complicated than the the general perception of Dutchness and cleanliness and clarity. And yes, by and large, that's what we think of. But there is this other side of it, and this is. One of the nice things about the show is it introduces introduces a kind of a realm of imaginative thinking and conveying of ideas that was incredibly important in the early part of the century. Really, at the formation period of the formation of the Dutch Republic, this was the art. This was the dominant art form. So, it's you know I know exactly what you're saying, but it is it's. You know, it's one of these things we keep finding ourselves, and I say it as well. So it's not, it's not like you should, you're saying something that I don't say. I say it all the time. You know, Dutch has all these qualities, but damn it, you know, this is Dutch as well. So you gotta, we gotta kind of expand our, our kind of way we think about Dutch. What is it? So now, in terms of the filling every bit, yeah, that is a, so that is really a, a character over of a 16th century ideas probably probably and so and they it starts getting filtered out and the, you I mean what you say is absolutely correct but I'm just gonna fight back about it not being touched the beach in in Perseus and Andromeda is weird you have a skull and and a bone and then you have lots of seashells is 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 there a meaning that in 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 that mix of shells and the skull, or well, Perseus and drama is an amazing painting. This is a huge painting, <clears throat> and this is the painting when you walk into the exhibition is right there in front of you as you walk in, and it is uh, it's kind of this uh, talk about imagination about you know it really it's it's a Utaval wanted you to imagine what it would be like to be Perseus, you know, out on the Sunday ride through the sky. You know, having it nice breezes and passing along, and then and he sees this. He thinks initially a sculpture uh, against the cliff, and then he looks more carefully, and the breeze blows the hair and the tea, tears uh, in her eyes. Oh my God, that's not just a sculpture. That's you know, that's a pretty good-looking woman. <laughs> so 
And then she he, fills the left hand third of the painting. Yeah, she fills the whole painting, and she is looking up. She is very sensual, very lovely in a very contrapposto pose. So he springs into action. He says, "Oh my God, there's a dragon down there!" So he whips down and deals the dragon, and then. He clearly, by then, has figured out she's tied, attached, tied uh, to the uh, bound to the to the cliff, and there are skulls and skeletons at her feet that really show. Well, this is there. This is a place where people have been sacrificed before. She's actually bound up there because her mother, stupid mother, Cassiopeia, had had bragged that she was the most beautiful woman of all or something like that. And the gods weren't happy with that. And so in order to alleviate that sin, they said you could sacrifice your daughter and then all will be forgiven. So this was a sacrifice. So you have this sense of death that was there. And so she's standing on these, in the midst of these these bones and skulls. But she's also with these shells that you may see. And it's interesting you see these shells because you realize that however elegant and mannered Duteval is, the incredible realism in the still life elements all the way through the show is incredible. I mean, every single shell or or cucumber or, or head of lettuce or cabbage or whatever or pot, it's they're amazing. But anyhow, she is not standing on just any shell. She's standing on a very sexy conch shell that is has all sorts of sensual, sexual implications. So, not only... Yeah, I mean, it's so it's pink, and it's very, got all this kind of interesting shape to it, and so it's clear that Perseus sees this woman, and she's not only beautiful, but there's also potential there in a much more sensual, sexual realm than that Utaval is able to convey through this juxtaposition of her, her having a foot resting on this conch shell. He's a painter who never shies away from the sexual, particularly in the many paintings he made of Mars and Venus, surprised by Vulcans. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, you know it's, it's it's sexual, but it's 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 the full sensuality of the paintings. I think is what you end up coming with. So, I find them more sensual than sexual. I mean, they're, they're sexual places. They're sexual kind of subjects and scenarios, but it's really ver- the appeal is the sensuality of the experience and the colors and the and the and the swirl. And I think what the other thing that it's true with Perseus and Andromeda and, and Mars and Venus in bed, or even the sacrifice, the martyrdom of Saint Sebastian. Everybody seems to be having a good time. I mean, Andromeda doesn't look particularly. She looks kind of pleased to see this guy Perseus coming, you know. You know, and Saint Sebastian doesn't look really very worried. He looks kind of pleased about things, whatever they might be. And the guy who's tying him up says, "Oh man, this is great. Bring me some more." I mean, it's, everybody's in a, a kind of a very happy frame of mind, and the, the gods and goddesses looking down on Mars and Venus in bed clearly are enjoying the scenario that they're witnessing. So it's a it is a very happy show. I think it is a there is very little that you know, people live through these world realms, and I think Utaval makes you feel very engaged and drawn to the subject, particularly. In the, in the way he, he represents these stories. Well, let's leave Udaval and, and broaden our conversation to, 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 to Dutch art and your, your career in presenting it more broadly. 
I don't know how many major exhibitions of Dutch art you've you've curated or co-curated or brought to the gallery, but it's probably a lot closer to two dozen than one dozen, maybe maybe more than two dozen. Yeah, it's getting it's getting up near forty, I think, at this point. Well, so over the over, over the course of your career, you've kind of become a curator who can do pretty much any show of any single artist or idea in, in, in Dutch art that you want to do. So could you talk us through how you go about the process of deciding what shows you are going to do or, or bring to the National Gallery? Do you have a list that you've had for a long time that you just kind of work down or is it more timing and opportunity based? Or I don't think there's a, I have a logical progression of ideas in that regard. I've, of course, I'm very fortunate to work at the National Gallery. It's a great place. And the opportunities to do things here are unbelievable. And I've had wonderful support institutionally throughout the years from the director and the staff in all different ways. And what we can do in terms of installation and the publications and the catalog production, I mean, it's just, you know, I'm the beneficiary of so much support. It's just hard to even talk about, uh, uh, quantify all that. Also, because I've been doing it for a long time, I've had opportunities to get to know colleagues from around the world, and that is a great source of uh, support and ideas that come from, I also teach at the University of Maryland, and I have uh, students who have bring ideas as well to the table, make me think about things in new ways. So, there are there are lots of different frameworks from I guess the draw exhibition ideas and you know sometimes many of the shows that I've done I try to focus on works in our collection and draw out of those an, a concept or an idea that will bring artists to the fore. One of the of course one of the things that I'm is very true in our uh, understanding of 17th century Dutch art is that most people have only heard of three artists or so. There's a, you know, there's a Rembrandt guy and a Vermeer guy and a Franz Hals maybe and maybe Raustal, but that's pretty much the, the, in terms of the, the broad framework of public awareness. So well, we have a wonderful painting by Jan Steen or Terborg or Metsu or Dao or Impenmeers. These are these are great artists, but they're not ones that people sort of think about so much. So a lot of what I've been trying to do is to draw attention to the, the, the diversity of what the Dutch have created in the 17th century, inspired by the great works in this collection, the great quality of works. And in doing that, obviously, we have a, you know, our collection is great, but it's not large in, in the scheme of things. So we need to work with partners a lot to make that happen and work with colleagues like this Uteval show. We have been great, you know, the great fortune to work with the museum in Utrecht, the Central Museum that had lent eight paintings to the show. So it was, I mean, we could not do it without Utrecht as being a partner. And we could not do a Vermeer show without having the Moritz House as the partner because they, that they bring great works of art and great colleagues together. And, because I've done the, 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 you know, a number of shows, people, I think, have, have gotten confidence that I can do these things, and they know this institution can produce great exhibitions, and that allows 
confidence in what we're going to do, and so that helps with loans. I mean, it's, of course, one of the challenges of doing a show ever is to you know get the loans that you need, and we've been very fortunate with that. But I think it builds on a history that people can look to and say, well, yeah, okay, I think it'll happen. I think there is, we can trust the National Gallery and the their partners with with doing something that will bring us to a greater understanding of that artist or that idea, whether it's a you know, still life show or a broader genre show or cityscape show or whatever they are, we'll learn something new from that experience. So I think it helps build on itself. So a lot of times the, the shows are not, I don't originate the ideas. People have come to me with ideas say, you know, we would like you to, we'd like to work together with you to do this. And then so then we think about it and how that might work and we generally turn, tend to evolve the concept a bit in the process, but it's a it's a very much a, a shared kind of experience. What artists or themes and ideas interest you in terms of possible future exhibitions these days? What what, what that hasn't been done kind of catches your eye? Whether something you might want to do or, or would hope to see? We have a few shows working on at the moment. One of them I think is going to be well, they're all wonderful. I'm looking forward to them all. One is uh, a show we're doing together with Custodia, the Lut Collection in Paris, which is a wonderful small villa, uh, actually, but with a fabulous collection that was formed by Fritz Lucht in large part, a great scholar and collector in the early 20th century. They've got a great collection of drawings, and what we are doing is a, a show that is called from drawings to paintings. So the the way Dutch artists made drawings that then became part of the 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 process that ends up with a painted work of art. So sometimes it's compositional drawings, sometimes they are figure drawings, and sometimes they are some combination. And we're trying to work with the whole question of underdrawings and look at infrared reflectographies of drawings on paper and the drawings that were on the panel and then the paintings that were made, you know, with that process. We've done some of this already with shows and some of the artists come back. So Henry Avakamp, we did a wonderful little exhibition of Henry Avakamp. And in that show, we had some of the figures that Avakamp drew. And then we had paintings where the same figures appear, appear in the painting. So how is that process? What is the range of the process? So this is a show that will deal with you know, artists like Avacomp, uh, or Rembrandt, or you know, Ralph Jakob and Ralph Stahl, a whole array of uh, Adrian van Ostade genre scenes. So that's coming up in a couple of years. We are doing a show together with the Louvre and the Museum in Dublin, the National Gallery in Dublin, the National Gallery Ireland in Dublin, of what I lovingly call Vermeer and his buddies, which is probably not the correct title, but it's a Vermeer and <laughs> Anyhow, but that's the way I think of it. It's, so we've done a lot of shows, monographic shows of genre paintings here at the gallery. So we did Vermeer, we did Stain, Tiborg, Metsu, Dow, Van Mieris. And all these artists, they look more or less alike. They do ladies in interiors playing musical instruments, writing letters, some of the same activities. But they've been all these sort of silo shows focusing on these artists to try to get an understanding of them. But this show 
really working together with Adrian Vibor, who actually had worked with me here at the gallery, was an intern and worked on the Tabork show with me, but he's now the curator in Dublin. And he worked on Metsu and did the Metsu exhibition. That was uh, Adrian's inspiration to do the Metsu show. Well, Metsu is an artist who clearly draws from a lot of these other masters from different cities. And so that's the point of this show to see, okay, Vermeer does letter writers. So so does Terborg, so does Dow, so does you know Metsu. What did they know of each other when they were doing them? Who were they did they know them firsthand? Did they hear them word of mouth? Did they travel? Did they see each other? Did they change the materials or techniques, their styles? because they knew this was a good market, that somebody was creating a market. So we're trying to create these groups of works that show relationships be, that existed, that could have existed between these artists to try to determine, okay, what were those relationships? I mean, were they masters, pupil? Were they dealers that worked with both of them? Were they somehow traveling? Were, how did they get to know each other's works? That's a neat idea. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be really, really interesting, and it'll. It we have so many questions going into it, and I'm sure we're not going to answer many of them. But just that's exciting and shows to kind of raise questions, do what you can, and and hope that that framework that you establish can lead to new scholarship to people thinking about these things and have a broader understanding. We're actually going to do. A, kind of interesting website about that and hope that will help people you know when they have they see artists that they think belong to the story to to bring that information to create a, a broader network of information that comes out of this whole experience to switch from exhibitions to your collection galleries they've long been my favorite suite of permanent collection galleries in any american art museum and i used to live in washington and when people would visit, it was it was always the thing they wanted to talk about first, and so a lot a lot of that's the collection, of course, which you've built over the last forty plus years. But there are a lot of specific decisions that must have come from you that are that are very present, from the kind of order of the installation, you know, Rembrandt along the hallway, through to the Utrecht Caravaggisti and and Van Dyck out back, if you will, for example to the paneling, which is, is, is unique to, to, to your galleries in, in the National Gallery's West Building. Could you outline a little bit your philosophy of presenting the collection and why and how Dutch galleries should be and feel different from, say, French or Italian galleries? Of course, every collection has its own character. And every museum has its own spatial character as well. There is a, a wonderful fusion of these two at, here at the National Gallery that provides certain opportunities or different approaches that probably would not be appropriate in most other museums. And I think, so you have to, I don't, I don't want to generalize too much about how one ought to install that chart. I think that's you know, what the Rijksmuseum does and what the Louvre does and what Detroit does and what the Met does. They, they, have, to, they have to work within the framework of your institution and your collection.
Well, what I would so can I uh, go back to our collection? And one of the things you mentioned the paneling, and the paneling is an interesting phenomena that many people find why do you have the paneling you know and of course it was here as part of the the build the structure of the building that when it was built and it, the, the paneling is interesting because it has divisions so it has these pilasters so, so the divides the wall into sections so often some of the larger galleries will have on the large the longer wall have a a, a smaller panel, a larger panel, and a smaller panel. Sort of already subdivided for you. And that's that's interesting in in looking at the various galleries because they have a, they have a sort of a structure built into that that gives you a framework for thinking about your installation. And I think to me that's always been very important. Now that is a nice there is they're kind of it's good in life to have restrictions placed on you. What are what are the limits of what you can do? And what and how can you best take advantage of those limits and draw them to the max? And so what that structure does, that scenario that I just described, is it really forces you into a symmetrical hanging. You have uh, you know, equal sides, uh, equal panels on either side. You have a larger one in the middle. So, and 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 that s- sort of structure, which you want to balance your room, gives the gallery a kind of a restful experience. And I and that's something. And, and spacious is spacious, spacious and restful. That has always been part of the character of this collection, and it works because. We have been so fortunate to have these great paintings, you know, from the Mellon collection, the Widener collection, the Crest collection, and all these wonderful donors in more recent years that have helped build on that collection. So you have great works that can hold their own in these in this restrict this this structured space in which we've been given to work with. And and it's and so there are two things. One if I were to say at museums around the world what you should do, I should say go for the best possible quality. And the quality is not only the composition design, but the, also the condition of the work and how has it been preserved. Be really conscious of that. I would, I would say that you really need to think carefully about your frames, your framing. And to me, that is crucial to the presentation of the work. You want to think about the lighting and how the lighting works of the individual painting and also the wall and how you work those together so you enhance the experience but you don't spotlight it so much that it becomes theatrical. I would say it's important to think about the the, the neighborhood that your works are are in and who are your neighbors. What what kind of relationships do you have with your neighbors? Do you, you know, good walls sometimes make good neighbors, but you want to have communication. And so, how do you communicate? How does this work? Does it, it are there stories that communicate through color, through scale, through storyline? There are different ways that works of art can communicate. You know, I. I have such a great time walking through my galleries. I just, you know, I just go over there and think, oh, man. And they're friends. They're old friends. They've been around 
we've been together for a lot of years. We've been over 40 years for many of them. You know, we wave at each other in the morning. How was your night? You know, I haven't seen you for a week. How are things going? I mean, you feel that kind of connections. And it's um, it's an exciting experience to feel that way. And it's, and it's partly, they're, they're friends that have been there for 40 years. And, you know, yes, they have changed. Sometimes, sometimes they've changed because they, they found a new frame to put around themselves, and that's good. Uh, maybe they decided they needed a little re refurbishment and went down to conservation and got a little cleaned job and, you know, get cleaned up a bit. I mean, so they look a little bit happier. Maybe they've just got a new neighbor. They make some look feel happier. I mean, all sorts of things happen. The paintings are not, you know, not, not, not always, but that certainly happens. That could change the whole room. You see one painting clean like that. But you've changed. That's the thing that I think is the most important. You've changed. You're not the same person you were 40 years ago. You're not the same person you were two years ago. You're not the same person you were one year ago. And the same person you were five minutes ago. You've Something's happened. You've met somebody new. You've seen a cloud formation that somehow is different. You've seen wind pass through a tree that makes the leaves flicker in a certain way. You've seen a dog... You know, poop against a, a wall. I mean, it's, you know, this is Dutch art we're talking about after all. I mean, you, got, you know, there are these things that you happen and then, oh, my God, look at that. I just saw that cloud. I saw that sunset. Or then when you go to the painting and you go out at night and you see, you've seen the paintings, you look at things differently around the world because you've seen it in these paintings. You've seen somebody with a funny hat. And you see the same person walking down the street with a funny hat. I mean, these kinds of connections keep going and they keep creating new experiences for these works. And that's why I think one of the great things about great art, and this is where we have been, you know, fortunate gallery and we have this great heritage and what I've been trying to do as a curator is, kind of, all right, there's a lot of great art out there that, Mr. Mellon and Mr. Widener and Mr. Crest never looked at. They never even thought about it. They had a certain canon. They had artists that Fromentan says, these are important. This is what Dutch art is all about. And so they worked to collect them. They collected the Rembrandts and they collected the Paulus Potters and the John Staines. And, but they never looked at Uteval. They never looked at Terbruggen. They never looked at Goltzius. These were not artists that were part of their world, but they're and that's why when you say, why is this not Dutch? It is Dutch, but this is not the Dutch. So we're trying to expand that. Okay, Dutch art, the 17th century is an amazing place. It's far more diverse and interesting and changing and has aspects of it that we don't anticipate. We I mean, thought about it. I mean, there are artists now that I've been working to inquire in the sky, acquire, whose works I've been acquiring. I never heard of in graduate school. I never heard of when I first came to the National Gallery. And now they're now they're hanging. I had never heard of some of these 10 years ago. So they're now they're hanging on the walls. And that is, I find, I mean, I'm very proud of that, actually, personally. It's kind of a, seeing a, it's like this world that, you know, you can, you can engage in and you can experience has become a richer, more diverse world than than we ever anticipated. 
It's great to see the front halls of the Harlem Civic Guard member that's been there for years and then to go into the rooms behind it and see things that haven't been. Arthur Wheelock, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.